0: From New Hampshire Public Radio and the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, you're listening to Check This Out, a new literary series where we dive deeply into the works of emerging and diverse authors you may not have discovered yet. I'm your host, Rachel Barenbaum, author of the novel Atomic Anna. I am thrilled to be able to share these conversations with you over the next few weeks. Today, we have an amazing rock star writer guest, Wahini Vara, and we are going to talk about her brand new story collection, which just published, This Is Salvaged. So Wahini is a very special guest for me personally, because when I started out as a fledgling podcaster, one of my very first guests was actually Andrew Alchul her husband. And then I actually had Wahine on for her debut novel, and both of them were so patient with me when I was learning the ropes and trying to be a podcaster. Now it's been a while, and I've been picked up by the Howe Library and NHPR, and I get to have Wahine back on to talk about her debut short story collection. This collection actually sold with her first novel, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It was called The Immortal King Rao, and it was Unbelievable. If you haven't read that book yet, I cannot recommend it enough. Just as I cannot recommend this short story collection, this is salvaged enough either. Mahini, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you to New Hampshire Public Radio for having me. So much fun to see you again. So, my very first interview with Andrew Alchul, Wahini's husband, was actually in the written form because I started out doing this series as written interviews. And then I realized no one was reading online anymore. And I was getting a lot more attention when I was recording podcasts. So, I switched over to recorded interviews with authors. And Wahini was one of my very first recorded guests for the podcast. What I love about this book of short stories, This Is Salvaged, and Why I Ask You to Come Back for This Debut, is because these stories are pretty much in 20-page chunks, so it's very readable, right? I could be sitting waiting for the tea in Boston, which is our subway, right? And I can read a whole story or whatever. It's always good to have a book like that around. But each of these stories is entirely different. You took me into a new world and new characters with each story, but all of them gave me a glimpse into a person's life when they were at their lowest. There wasn't polish. There wasn't hiding. There weren't excuses. You weren't trying to write a happily ever after. You just gave us a raw look at situations that might be easy to pity. But Vara doesn't write these characters for pity, and I didn't read them to feel bad for them. I read these stories as your way of telling me and other readers that we are not alone. That really this is about connection, this is about life, that everyone has a point when they feel they are at their lowest and you just keep going forward. There's really nothing else you can do. And that's really how I read this book. This is what resonated with me. That's why I loved it and that's why I wanted you to be on the show again.
1: Thank you so much. What, what nice words, Rachel.
0: <laughs> well, I mean it. Really, I think the theme that pulls all of these stories together is that we are not alone that all of us hit really hard times and we are not alone. Um, And I also, you know, took from this book that this was a very personal collection for you. Um, You were the daughter of Indian immigrants and you write about Indian immigrants and immigration in here, you know, characters who have just come to the U.S. And also your sister died from cancer. And you write about a brother and characters, right, fighting cancer, a mother-in-law who have fought cancer, one who dies from cancer. There's a very personal element to this book. So can you talk about that and, and that personal piece in these stories?
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think all of us as writers, I don't know if this is true for you, Rachel, but I think I think it's a fair um a fair blanket statement to make. Uh to say that I think all of us as writers draw from our personal lives in some way, right? And then some of us or rather, in some places it's more hidden than in other places. Um, to give an example, there's the the title story in the collection. This is Salvaged is about this like mid middle aged white artist, like visual installation artist, right? Who is trying to build an arc uh, to the specifications of the Bible as like his sort of like big um, his big masterpiece. What he thinks will be his big project. And I think that may be the character in which people. Assume I am located least, right because uh identity wise I have nothing that that character has nothing to do with me. and I tend not to write like I often do write indian female Indian American characters. Um, I don't often write about like a white male character, for example. um and there's reason for that, which is that those that experience is farther from my experience. That said, even in that story, like. I think that's the story, that's a story where I snuck myself in sort of unnoticed in that I too am an artist um, sort of grappling with what it means to be an artist in the world and like what, what value you can bring to the world, a world sort of in crisis, right? As an artist. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's, that's sort of interesting, interesting to know, but yeah, I am otherwise all over this collection too.
0: But I love that in, in this um, story, this is salvaged, not the whole book, but this, the particular story. I love that you dig right into this question of what is art? Because the main character in that story, really, his goal is to destroy his art in the end. And then so he builds this huge arc. It's destroyed. And then you see these hipsters bragging about the furniture they have that they made from this destroyed ark, And they're like, oh, it's salvaged. We're so cool. We're saving the earth. you know. But they have no idea where it came from. His art is gone. The memory of his art is gone. So what is art? Again, why are we writing? Yeah, I love that question. I mean, I think to the
1: extent that I that my vision maps to the vision of the character in that story, Marlon, right? I think like the, the intersection is this place in which um, both he and I, and I, I think many of us are, as artists, right, are like just trying to produce something that conveys like something about what it is like to be alive. Right. Um, Whether that's through like high concept installation projects, right. Or through a short story or a novel. Um, I think the, the, the artist in my story has a, probably has like a somewhat more nihilistic vision of the world um, than I do. But that said, you know, going back to your first question, like, I think I think one of the things that fiction can do for us as writers, like the sort of self-serving thing that it can do is like allow us to play out like what might be these these visions that we share as well, but in some marginal way, and we can kind of blow it up and say, what would it look like for this to for this to sort of be the entirety of it, right? the entirety of the way of the way an artist views the world. But to speak to your question more broadly, um, I don't know. I mean, I tend to think that there's nothing art needs to be doing beyond itself, right? Beyond existing as it's for its own sake. I don't expect art to change the world. I don't expect art to make us more empathetic toward one another. Like all of those things. Like, I I think we make these arguments in the humanities, right? Because we're trying to get uh, college students to take humanities classes. We're trying to get people to buy books, right? Like, I think those kinds of arguments sometimes exist within like the marketplace for our work, but- I, I don't know. I think maybe when it comes down to us, all of us deep down, I don't know, I, again, I'm making a generalization and I, I'll speak for myself and say that I feel like, like it really, like really, it just exists because it exists, right? Like it's there because it's there. We We produce it because we somehow, for whatever reason, feel called to, to, to write these things or make these things and who knows why.
0: Except that you say, I've read you talking about your work before, and you say that um, all of your stories, all of your work starts in something that is real, right? And then you sort of pump up the emotion. So if, you know, the emotion is down at a four, you're pumping it up to a 15 or a 100, right, to really put us in there. So it doesn't just exist to, you know, be there. It's also exploring something that's real, something that happens to people.
1: Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that's what it's it exists for its own sake is all I'm saying. Right. Like it, it, there, there's nothing, there, there's nothing, like there's no goal for me beyond that. Does that make sense? Beyond sort of like
0: conveying what life is like. So I want to talk about your grief and sort of turning your pouring yourself into these stories in relation to the very first one, The Irates, which is about uh, a, a woman, a teenager who loses her brother and she ends up working with her best friend as a tele, telemarketer. And that's supposed to be their summer job um, and it turns into all kinds of other things. But really grief seemed to be at the heart of it. And I would love to hear about how you poured your grief into that story and how personal that was for you. Yeah. I mean, this,
1: I started this story. The reason I'm hesitating is because I started this story in 2008. So 15 years ago. Um, And I think there was probably some point when I started writing this story in which the story was very close to my own experience. Right. Um, in which I was writing about how I felt about, uh, about the grief I'd experienced. Um, and for many years, I, I worked on the story for about 15 years, 13, 14, 15 years, something like that. Um, and I think the story was sort of stuck there for a while. Um the story that exists now in some ways, I mean, of course it's about grief and a sibling dying, but it's not really, it's not my grief exactly. Um, I mean, to, to to give you, to tell you more explicitly what I mean, I, I don't know if this is too in the weeds to be interesting, but I, um, my best friend and I had telemarketing jobs in the year 2001, um, which was also the year my sister passed away. Um, and so that's certainly, like, that's a similarity between my life and the story. But my best friend is the one who has, like, the sort of, like, a bigger, grouchier, angrier personality. And so I sort of, like, or not anymore, but as teenagers, you know, when we were teenagers, she, she did. And so I sort of, like, in some ways, I think of, like, the me character, right, the narrator who is Indian American as, like, in some ways, that's that's more a reflection of my best friend than of myself, Right. Um, and so as the story, I mean, this is true for any story, but as the story evolved over time, like it sort of had its own needs as a story kind of independent really of like the, my own grief and what I wanted to say about it, because I I think like that talking about that grief, like I can do in my, in my diary or wherever else, but like to sort of like really explore these different in a, in a narrative way, in a fictional way, like the, these ideas about like how what grief does to us and how it's expressed, the the story ended up sort of taking on a life of its own.
0: It's so fascinating to hear that you wrote this story over such a long period of time that the emotions changed. And I feel like this really highlights how varied your writing skills are and why you're such an interesting writer. So the first time your publicist um, pitched your book to me, um, she led with the line that, uh, you know, you are a former tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal and later launched edited and wrote for the business section of the New Yorker's website and yet you write fiction and sci- sci-fi and these short stories and i was like sign me up right tell me about tell me about this woman and why i should read her book and send me a copy you know how do you sort of balance those two sides because you have this grief these emotions right these questions in these stories of am i alone what am i doing and yet you also are amazing at writing tech stories and business and right. And you freelance now for lots of other magazines. So can you talk about those? two? Yeah,
1: I mean, when I was in college, I worked on my school paper. And every summer I interned at a newspaper, I knew like, I, I don't know that I knew that I wanted to be a journalist, but I knew that that was what I was interested in then. So I just kept doing it. And then I studied, I minored in creative writing. And so the other thing that I was doing while spending a lot of time doing sort of student journalism stuff was Um, was take creative writing classes. And that's how I kind of learned to be a writer. And so when I graduated college, I started working right away as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. And I did that for four years. And then I took a leave of absence and went to graduate school to focus on my fiction writing. Um, And then went back to work uh, first at the Journal, then at the New Yorker, and then at all kinds of other publications as a freelancer. And that whole time I was working on fiction and like publishing stories here and there, but I hadn't and I didn't publish a book until, until last year. And so, um, you know, I, I know a lot of writers and my husband, Andrew, who you mentioned is one of them who, you know, they wake up every morning and, and they write, um, and they really have a routine about it. And I have never been that way as a writer. Um, I've usually not have had jobs that sort of facilitate that particularly easily because I, until recently, I always, you know, was working 40 or more hours a week doing the things that paid the bills rather than, uh, rather than writing. And so I always had to sort of tuck it into like before my kid was born into weekends or after he was born, you know, he, the year he was born was the year I started to freelance. So that's when my, my, um, my, uh, schedule opened up and, and allowed for me to, to sort of like fit the writing in more effectively, um, And so it's always, you know, I've had sometimes like years at a time when I'm not working on on fiction. Um, I think that's part of the reason it's a little deceptive to say my novel and my story collection both took like 13 plus years because it's not like I was like waking up every morning for all of those 13 years and trying to work on these books. And so, yeah, that's the kind of kind of writer I've, I've been.
0: But even when you're not writing, you're writing, right? They're still with you.
1: Yeah, people say that. Is that true? Do you feel like that's true for you as a writer? For I don't know. I don't know. I, I think... I'm not sure. Like, I think I've gone years without thinking about the characters in my books. And then I... We'll open it up again and be like, OK, I got to get to know these characters again so that I can keep writing this thing.
0: I love that. So then you have like a blank start, right? Or blank, blank page. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Wahini Vara, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about her brand new short story collection, This Is Salvaged. So these books, the unifying theme for me really was you are not alone. And you were really very brave in just laying out, right, these sort of people at their lowest. So I, Buffalo is by far my favorite story, I think, in this collection. And yet it it was sad. It was raw. Um, we see a high-flying lawyer who looked like she had it all on the outside just comes crashing down. She's actually have, you know, struggling with substance abuse, with alcoholism. She has this crazy night with a client. She gets fired. um, And then she's, you know, we see her in these blackout drunk moments. And um, all of a sudden her sister calls and says, I want to come visit. And so her sister is going to come over with her niece, with her husband. They're going to spend the night. And the protagonist, Sheila, is a little bit worried because there's a horrible smell somewhere in the apartment. And she can't find it. And so she's trying to cover it up. And she knows it's because she threw up somewhere and she can't find it. Right? Talk about the lowest of the low. (laughs) She can't remember. So could you just read this section for us?
1: Now Mara spoke again. Sheila, seriously, what's that smell? Priya and Sam turned to look at me, and I stood to clear the table, making a noisy pile of the plates and then going to the sink to slide the scraps into the garbage disposal. I could feel pinpricks under my arms, and I wondered if I was visibly sweating. What? I called out from the sink but even as I spoke, I knew I sounded stupid. I had to confess. The smell, I called, still standing there. Then I returned to the table and added like it was nothing. I threw up somewhere. Oh, Sheel, Priya said. I didn't know which was worse, her passive aggression minutes ago or her pity now. I don't know where it is, I said, feeling smaller than the smallest person ever to have existed. It's
0: weird. Oh my God, what a moment, right? Can I, like, that is just so hard to, to, you know, see this unfolding. And yet you don't blink and you don't pull us back, right? You pull us right into this moment. So I would love to hear you talk about how you got into that moment and how you looked at that character.
1: Interestingly, when I started the story, again, in like 2009 or 2010, I was in graduate school. And the story started as having to do with this, this, visit between this woman and her her sister and brother-in-law and niece that was all there um and there was like this vomit subtext like there was um this woman had like thrown up sheila had thrown up somewhere i don't remember if like she didn't know where it was and they had to go find it in in that draft of the Of the story. But there was like, it was sort of like this thread that was running through the piece. And I remember I took it to a class, I took it to a workshop with the writer Edward Carey, and um, the writer who, who at the time was teaching in at the University of Iowa, where I was studying. And his only piece of feedback was like, you've got to lean into that vomit, the story's all about the vomit, you've got to do more, just dial it up with the vomit. And um, I've had many times in my life, like I think workshop gets a bad rap sometimes, but I've had many times in my life where somebody, whether it's like the workshop leader the professor or another student, like says something like that. And I'm like, oh, yes. Um, and I remember after that, just like realizing that this story, that that was what the story was about. Whereas in in previous versions of the story like the vomit was sort of symbolic of the kind of spiritual and motion and moral decay that sort of occurring in San Francisco in this person's life. But, um, but wasn't like the plot. It wasn't like the vehicle driving the story. And as I, without any spoilers, like I can say that now it's sort of in this current iteration, it's sort of like what the story is about.
0: Yeah. I mean, I thought that story was all about the vomit. I really did. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was a goal. In the end, that was the goal. Yeah. I mean, I could see how you could take it to like all sorts of symbolic levels or whatever, but I felt like it was best when it was just about the vomit and Sheila being at her lowest. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest, Wahini Vara. We're talking about her new story collection, This Is Salvaged. Stay with us. Back. I'm Rachel Barenbaum and you're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. My guest today is Wahini Vara and we are talking about her brand new debut short story collection, This Is Salvaged. So there is definitely an overarching theme here of showing us humanity, your characters, really at their rawest, at their lowest. You are unflinching. You do not want us to pity them. Right. We are looking at them as people, you know, sort of you are not alone is the theme. And this is where they are. Um, And one of the ways I thought that you really showed us that theme and did it so well was you focused on girlhood and a lot of sweat, There was a lot of primal, right, primal sort of associations or descriptions of sweat. You talk about women's nipple hair and labial sweat and sweat behind the knees, right? These are all very visceral um, descriptions and, and ties to hormones, right? You really lay it out there. How did you think about these kinds of details and being so specific on these?
1: So it's, it's funny because I read after my book came out, the, or I guess right before my book came out, one of the first or the first full length review of my book by uh, the writer Hannah Rivers in High Country News was about the sort of like bodily-ness of the story collection, the way in which it talks about like vomit and sweat and other bodily functions and body hairs like you said. And this is gonna sound nuts, but that is not something that I was aware of in the in the collection until she pointed it out and then the next reviewer pointed it out. And then I started doing interviews and people pointed it out. And I was like, all right, it's not it's not them. It's obviously me. You know, there's obviously something I'm I'm doing um, in here. So I had to look back at the stories and be like, so what was I, what what was that about? You know, um, it was happening on a subconscious level, clearly as I was writing the stories. But I think as I reflect on it now, what may have been happening in the stories is that because these are stories that to me are kind of about like the porous, the porousness of the boundaries between ourselves and other humans, the porousness of the boundaries between ourselves and And anything else, right? Like what we think of as being outside of ourselves. I think it then follows or it makes sense again on a kind of symbolic or, um, or subconscious level for subconscious for me and symbolic in the context of the stories, um, for these, these aspects of ourselves that sort of are both of us and not of us to be prominent, right? Like, like the vomit that comes from us but then is no longer within us and but is somehow still a reflection of us right um or or the sweat that we excrete um so I think I think that's one thing that's one way in which it's functioning I think also if I think about the specifics of each of the stories like in some of the stories these bodily things are serving different functions I think um in the first story, which is about grief and this character's sense of like, kind of anger at existing in the world when her brother who has died no longer exists in the world. Um, the things that are like bodily that are like physical about her are the things that remind her that she is here as a sort of like bodily human being, right. When her brother is not, and that disturbs her. Right. And so, that's the context in which it's functioning there in the story of the hormone hypothesis, which you referenced with the, with, with the mentions of nipple hairs and so on. Um, that is a story about the kind of like, the kind of like private language that women have among themselves, um, that isn't, isn't often exposed to the outside world. And so in order to like make explicit what I was talking about there, it felt like I had to like I had to give up some of the secrets. You know, I had to talk about some of the things I had to put on the page, some of the things that we mean when we say that. Right. Um, and, and I think that that past those passages like really resonated with a lot of, a lot of women reader in particular who were like, Oh yeah, I've had those conversations with my friends. Like, or I've, I've, I've thought about that on a subconscious level, but like here's somebody putting it in, into words. Um, and that was gratifying.
0: Yeah. It's so crazy to hear you say that you weren't aware of all of these bodily functions that were in there. Because to me, I,
1: wasn't. It
0: was, I mean, that's so crazy, I guess, because you were just writing the story and you were just in your characters.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I do think it's the case that I, with this book, was especially interested in sort of like rendering how life is in as authentic a way as possible. And maybe that involves kind of going, going there with all aspects of what it is to be human and sort of not holding back, which maybe, maybe is also partly where that comes from.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Um, So I want to dig a little bit more into the hormone hypothesis, um, because I, I did love that that was, you know, a conversation between two women, basically. Right. And they're getting to know each other. And they're also getting to know these new bodies as they're shifting from, you know, their younger years to perimenopause, to their bodies changing and everything. And you did. You laid it all out there. So how did you do that? Did you like practice with girlfriends or like, you know, I don't know. How did you get that on the page so well? That's funny.
1: There's, um, you know, I have, I have really close female, I have close friendships with, with women. It's been like just something that has been ongoing in my, in my life. Um, I'm still best friends with my best friends from, from high school and from college and from middle school. And so it's funny, like most of the details in that story, come from something real, um, you know, something that I've talked about with female friends or something that I've experienced that I know other female friends have experienced. Um, it's funny. My, my best friend from college texted me and was like, I love that detail about how when you go into a bathroom stall, there's like the smell that the previous woman left behind, which is both repulsive and inspires this kind of fellow feeling with whoever that person was. And I said to her, I was like, you know, Dana, you're the one who mentioned that, like who pointed that out to me years ago, and it stuck with me. And she didn't remember that. But like, I remember this conversation with my friend Dana, where she was like, you know, that's that smell. And I was like, Oh, yeah, that is a thing. And so it made its way into the story. And so, uh, you know, a, a lot of the details in that story come from come from that sort of thing.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Berenbaum. My guest today is Wahini Vara, and you are listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about Wahini's brand-new short story collection, This Is Salvaged. And right now we are digging into themes of friendship and friendship between women and girlhood, and I want to push us a little further into coming of age. Because we also have friendships between younger girls, but also girls who are making big decisions, right? Should they work for a telemarketing firm? Should they work on a sex hotline? Um, And then also, you know, giving an eight-year-old the choice to, you know, live with her mom or her dad. Where does she want to go? I mean, these are big choices for young kids that you've put into these stories. So how did you think about those as you were writing? Yeah, that's a
1: great question. Um, I think in general... I, I like to see characters, um, sort of like exercise agency or sort of like be, be in a position where they have to, they have to do something or not do something. And it feels to them like, like something big is in their hands, you know, um, so in the case, for example, of this, eight, this girl who's trying to decide whether to live with her dad or with her mom, for example, she's eight. And so in reality, we kind of know as readers, you know, it's more complicated than just, you know, a decision this girl's going to make, right? There are all these other dynamics. There are these, the dynamics between the parents, there's the dynamic between the father and his new wife, Um but for the girl, for, you know, and we all remember this from being kids, like she, in in her consciousness, it feels to her like the weight of this decision is on her shoulders, right? And she sort of carries that, that weight throughout, throughout the story. Um, I, those moments are, are interesting to me, you know, like they're, they're, they're upsetting to live through. And I'm kind of drawn to like those upsetting, those upsetting times, um, In writing fiction. And so I think that's where that's why I gravitate toward them. I I think while I'm writing those kinds of stories or those kinds of scenes within stories, like I don't know that I ever know how it's going to turn out. And so I write them to kind of understand what's going to happen, you know.
0: Yeah, and I love the way you're talking about this because I think this is true, that um, there are moments that we remember in our childhood that we thought were big, where we thought we had agency, right? Like, um, you know, the child who thinks that she can choose which parent she's going to live with. But in fact, you know, we can look back with sort of a more mature, grown-up lens and say, did she? Did I actually have any choice, <laughs> right? Like, it, but And yet that's still a huge moment in the story or in a person's life, right? And you still described it with that weight that the eight-year-old feels. Yeah, yeah. How did you um, really dig into these sort of these memories, right? I feel like you took me back to what it was like to be an eight-year-old, <laughs> right? And and her eyes of like, you know, her mom is institutionalized, so she's going to see her dad and see if maybe that's where she's going to live. And there's a brand new stepmom that she didn't really, you know, expect or I guess um, know was going to be playing such a big part in the visit <laughs> and maybe her future. So how did you go into that? You know, bring it bring us into that part of the story. I
1: think. I think we all contain sort of all the past versions of ourselves within us, right? Like I, I think the older we get, the harder it becomes to summon. Um, and luckily some of these stories I started writing in my twenties. So that was, that was helpful to, to my ability, I think to write about the experience of of children. An interesting thing that happened though, as I was working on those stories was that I became a parent. And so sort of like my, my position, my position changed. I identified, I came to identify more as a parent than as a, as a kid. Actually in that story, you are not alone. I started it when I was in my twenties and then I finished it when I had, you know, I had my kid in my thirties and I finished it when my kid was maybe six or seven, you know? Um, and it changed the story. So it's a story that for most of its, for most of its life, um, as a story was sort of, sort of contained within the perspective of that 8-year-old girl. And in the current version of the story that's published, there is a shift at some point in which the story sort of considers the perspectives of this girl's father, um this girl's father's new partner. Um and that came to the story really really late, like within the past couple of years, I think because becoming a parent Suddenly made me interested in what those perspectives would be in a way that I think, like as a twenty-year-old, twenty-six-year-old, twenty-seven-year-old, twenty-eight-year-old person who wrote the first draft of that story, like it didn't even occur to me to be interested in that. And so, um, you know, I think both of those are valuable because I think if I started that story now, I don't know that I would be able to summon that eight-year-old perspective as clearly as I was when I was in my twenties. I hope
0: I would, but I think it would be harder. I think it would be right. The further apart we are from the time, the harder it is. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about um, just a, a little, little tiny piece of unknown unknowns, which is I think the shortest story in the collection. Right. It's just a few pages. Yeah. Um, and uh, you actually quote Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> And uh, you, you say, uh, there are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. <laughs> it was like Orwellian doublespeak yeah. and yet truth to it. Can, yeah. can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up that line because I think um, – so my, my novel, for people who don't know it, is, is it's called The Immortal King Rao, and it has to do with, like, if people describe that novel, they'll probably say something like, it's about capitalism and technology and system it's like a systems novel, right? And then when people describe the short stories, they might say, like, these are really different. These are just, like, intimate stories about pe- people's lives. Um, but I am, you know, as somebody who I majored in, in international relations and I minored in economics and then I went to work for the Wall Street Journal and I continue to be a business reporter, like it's those, those, the the sort of systems that influence our lives are very present in my thinking about the, the world. And so I think, um, they inform all of these stories in some way. Um, And that story, it's a really short kind of flash fiction-y story, really about like a mother and her son. Um, But the reason I have that Donald Rumsfeld quote in there is because I think, I mean, if if we didn't know that it was Rumsfeld, we might think it was like some philosopher or something, right, (laughs) who... um, who was sort of encoding a way to view the world and, um, epistemology and how we know the things we know and how we don't know the things we don't know. Right. Like, but it's also, you know, the story, this is sort of subtextual, but the story is sort of about, um, Elon Musk's Starlink, um, his, his satellites, uh, Uh, that kind of, like, appear like little stars in the sky if you catch them flying by, um, which has a lot of, like, you know, astronomers upset because it's, like, considered light pollution and makes it more difficult for them to do their job. Um, But so I was sort of concerned... The story for me was a way to, like, look at how the personal is contextualized within the political and within these broader systems because you've got Elon Musk with his satellites... You've got this sort of like Donald Rumsfeld's quote and sort of like everything that's followed from there in terms of like the destabilization of our understanding of what's real and what's not real and what can be known and what can't be known, right? Which has destabilized our entire politics both here and, and globally. And then you've got like this mother and her kid trying to just exist within that, right? And like trying to understand what life will be like for him when he he grows up and like not really knowing the mother, like can't really know how to answer that question, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so that's that's what I was trying to kind of contend with.
0: But how did you have a Donald Rumsfeld quote, like ready to go or or top of mind enough to write about it?
1: Oh, that quote no that quote um it was a quote I was familiar with because there was a period there where like it would be I, I guess it was pre-meme but I feel like it had a kind of meme-ish quality at for a time there like I w- my, my husband and I would like just like toss that not the whole quote but we would like refer to known knowns and unknown unknowns um so yeah it felt like in, it, it was like in the zeitgeist of my family life or something
0: that's amazing I love that so much I'm Rachel Berenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest, Wahini Vara. We're talking about her brand new debut short story collection, This Is Salvaged. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You are listening to Check This Out on NHPR. My guest today is Wahini Vara, and we are talking about her brand new debut short story collection, This Is Salvaged. So, Wahini, I love that you've been so open with us about how long these stories were gestating, right? Some of them you'd been working on for 10, 15 years, right? So can you tell me how a short story collection comes together? Some of the stories in this collection, I started in
1: graduate school and they were part of like the first version of this book. That was my thesis that, you know, that I used to graduate in 2010. At that time, the book was called We Were Here, which was, which is um, a line in the last story of the collection. And then it kept, you know, kept evolving from there. I think a lot of us writers have like a short story collection in our drawers somewhere, right? And that story short, that like quote unquote short story collection evolves every time we like, write a new story and take an old one out. um, It's like this, it's almost like a concept rather than an actual thing, because it's so hard to publish short story collections, frankly. And so that was what this was for me for a long time. My agent tried to sell it in 2015, and it didn't sell. And then we moved on, I moved on to focusing more on my novel. And then in 2020, when she sold, when we sold the novel, we ended up getting this two book deal where my publisher Norton who bought the novel decided to buy the story collection as well. Yes.
0: That must've felt so good.
1: It did. It did. It was exciting. Um, At that, by that point um, I had, like I said, I I had started at least half of the stories more than 10 years earlier. And so an interesting thing that I had to work through was to contend with the extent to which I wanted to like, radically revise the story so that it reflected sort of, you know, 40-year-old me who was in the process of revision and and would be 41 when the book came out, right? Um, Or the extent versus sort of like honoring the version of myself who wrote the original drafts of those stories. And, you know, I have a background as an editor too. And so almost like acting as an editor or a teacher or something to that, a workshop leader, right? To that version of myself. And I sort of erred on the latter approach, but I did a little bit of like inserting new perspective too. Like in that story we talked about where I, because I now as a, as a parent, I'm interested in the experience of parents sort of inserted more of that into the, into that story. You are, you are not alone. Um, uh but it was interesting like it felt revising this the collection sometimes felt more like editing somebody else's work, right? Than than revising my own work because I had I had started it at a time in which I was I was a, a really different writer in some ways.
0: Wow, I love that that it felt like you were editing someone else's work because it had just been so long. And maybe
1: that's why maybe that's also why you and I differ in like I, I think maybe that requires that distance, right? Like that that requires me to be like, I have no, I I barely remember this story. I, I haven't thought about it in ten years. When I when I when I pick it up to revise it again, right? Like I think that that is predicated upon not thinking of the stories constantly from when I started them,
0: right? Um, and so six of the ten stories in this collection were published beforehand, right? Can That's you right. tell us sort of that process and what happened there? Yeah, I mean I
1: I started sending stories out for publication sort of like before before I started graduate school. So in two thousand six, two thousand seven, I was in my twenties and I think my first couple of stories were published when I was in grad school.
0: The first So hold on just for a minute. Um, what does it mean to send a story out for publication? Do you have an agent? Like how do you do that?
1: Yeah, no, I didn't have an agent at that time. I literally would just, you know, these journals, um Thank you, no, thank you for asking that question. There are these literary journals. Oftentimes they're like they're run by universities, university creative writing programs. And now there's something called submittable, which is like this website where you can go and upload a upload a PDF of your of your story and they decide whether they want it or not. And that's how I submit stories now. Um, but in the past, it would be like you would print it out and put it in an envelope and mail it to them. Or you could like uh There would be some kind of like janky online system you could use. And so that's how um, that's how I sent stories out at first. I'm actually now realizing, though, that if I'm remembering correctly, the first story that was accepted, I had accepted for publication, which is not in this collection, was I had submitted it actually as part of my application to Cornell's MFA program, Cornell's creative writing graduate program. And they accepted me and I ended up going elsewhere. They accepted me into the program, though. And when I decided to go elsewhere, the editor said to me, you know, I love this story in your application. If you're interested, we can publish it in our journal. And so that was called Epic. And so that was my first um, accepted publication.
0: And then I think after that happened, that emboldened me to be like, oh, maybe I can send more things out. Wow, that's kind of, that's an amazing fairy tale story, right? Like, yeah, you're accepted actually. and we'll publish you. Yeah. That's amazing. So, you're still writing short stories, but you're also doing nonfiction pieces. So, how do you balance these two parts of your career? With some difficulty.
1: Uh, I, um you know, these days in a year, I'll probably write like two big magazine stories. Um This past year, I wrote two stories for Wired, um, for example. And when I'm working on those, I'm not really working on creative writing. Um, I'm sort of all in—you know, forty hours a week, um, uh, doing doing reporting and writing those pieces because you know they're like these are magazine stories, so they'll be like you know five to eight thousand words long or something like that, kind of the length of a short story or an essay. Um, and then I'll have periods of my life in which I'm not working on something journalistic, um, and that's when I will focus on something creative. Right now, I'm working on I'm working on essays. I have a I have a I have an essay collection coming out in 2025, actually, and my deadline is in January, January 15th, and so I'm I'm working toward that right now.
0: Wow, congratulations!
1: Oh, thank you. When did you sell that? Um, I sold it this spring to summer. It was like May ish it, but I'd been working on those essays for, for a while. But my most recent writing practice has actually been to try to have one day a week on my schedule where I don't do anything else. Like, like I don't, um, I don't do errands. I don't have phone calls. Like I literally have nothing else planned on that day. And that's like my one writing day a week. And then that allows me, you know, I drop my son off at school at eight o'clock. My husband picks them up and has until five, and so that gives me like a good nine hours a week to to write. And I I tend not to be someone who feels like I don't need that sort of like daily contact with it. If I can have like a nine-hour binge once a week, that's enough for me. So that's what I've been doing.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Wahini Vara, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about Wahini's brand new debut short story collection, This is Salvaged. Um, So you do a lot of mentoring, and uh, you're really involved in helping bring up new writers, aspiring writers. Can you tell us a little bit about your mentoring? Yes.
1: um, I am the secretary at a mentorship collective called ParaPlus. This is a mentorship collective uh, serving writers of color. It's just a group of us. Um, There's no formal organization structure. We don't ask for money or spend money. And we will, uh, we're about to enter our fourth year. So every year there's, there's 50 of us and ev- 50-ish of us. And every year we, we mentor 50 writers and they just join the collective and become part of it.
0: Amazing. And so who organizes it all?
1: Um, we we all do collectively. Um, I have this sort of, as the secretary, I'm dealing with sort of the logistics and I'm behind the email account and the Twitter account and that sort of thing. But because it's a collective, you know, if somebody has an idea for a panel they want to put together for the fellows or some kind of or if a fellow has an idea for a series they want to run, um, they just sort of decide to do it and and email the listserv and, and make it happen.
0: I love that. So any writer of color can apply.
1: Yes, that's right. Any writer of color living in the U.S., um, regardless of, of residency or citizenship status.
0: Awesome. And it's called Periplus? Yes. P-E-R-I-P-L-U-S. So aside from Periplus, I understand you are also a mentor through the Lighthouse Writers Workshops Book Project. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes. So Lighthouse runs this pretty great program in which anybody who has a, a book, um, usually their first book, but it can be your second or third or fourth book, um, can a, can spend two years with a mentor. And I'm one of the mentors. There There are a number of us. Um, in a cohort of six writers, uh, finishing a manuscript, getting feedback on that manuscript and just sort of getting some guidance and mentorship throughout that two year, two plus year, to be honest, process of putting a book together. And a lot of our graduates have gone on to publish their, their books and, um, yeah, it's a great gig. I love it.
0: Amazing. So we can check all of this out online, right? Anyone who's interested, aspiring, go check them out: Paraplus or Lighthouse Writers Workshops Book Project. <laughs> it's a mouthful, but it's totally worth it. So right now you're teaching at Colorado State University, right? What's it like teaching writing? It
1: is interesting because, as as you can tell from my answers to some of your questions, I tend to be a somewhat intuitive writing, writer. A lot of my writing occurs on a subconscious level. And I don't understand what it's doing until like, I've been revising it for five or 10 years, you know. Um, And so that can make it that can make it difficult to like, to, to say anything particularly objective about like how writing works or how we're expected to do it. At the same time, I think a lot of us write that way. And so when I'm when I'm talking to students about their work, my goal is not to like, try to have all the answers. Um, I, I mean, and I think this is true of a lot of us who, who teach writing, right? Like we're not coming into it trying to have answers about what writing is, which is I think what I, b- before I started teaching years ago, I thought write, writing teachers were supposed to do. I realize now that's not, that's not the goal. It's more to sort of like help writers deconstruct their work after they've sort of come up with a draft or two in the same way that I've learned to do that with my own work. Right. To like understand what it's doing and how it can be doing that more effectively.
0: Yeah. And so how do you think about the difference between writing a short story collection versus a novel? Like are you writing stories in between working on a larger novel or your essays in between, or like, do you just have to put everything aside and go all in on a novel?
1: Ooh, I don't know. I think we're all different. Right. I'd be curious about how, how you've approached it for me. You know, I've written one novel, so I don't even know. Like, I don't know. I can't, I can't pretend to know how to write a novel. I wrote, I wrote that one. It went fine in the end after all those 13 years. Um, While I was working on it, though, I was doing a ton of, my job was journalism, right? So I was doing a ton of journalism. I was also revising those stories that ended up in this collection, um so no I guess I I tend not to be sort of single-mindedly focused on one project but I
0: do have a a a main project at any given time I love it you say I've only written one novel (laughs) well that's why you're on the show because you're emerging (laughs) right thank you but it was a pretty massive amazing novel just as this story collection is um so you think you'll actually write another novel like will you get to that yes I am working on my next novel um I
1: uh I have started it I have like a draft-ish of it. And that's the next thing after the essay collection.
0: All right, great. So what advice do you have for new
1: writers? The advice I've been giving lately is to find your writing community, um, because I've always written sort of in community with writer friends, with writer mentors, and their understanding of my work has really played an important role in informing my work um, and has like enriched my life just as a, as a human, too. And so that's what I, I would recommend to any any emerging writer. Thank you so much to,
0: for joining me today, Wahini.
1: Oh, so nice seeing you again. Thank you for, um, for all those really thoughtful
0: questions. You have been listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We are a new series in partnership with the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire. This series was developed in order to dive deeply into the works of emerging and diverse authors you may not have discovered yet. I am thrilled to be able to share these conversations with you and hope that you will tune in again soon. I'll be back in the spring with another eight-part series and even more emerging and diverse authors and books that you should be reading. The show is brought to you through a partnership between the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, and NHPR. Our producers today are Jared Jenish, Megan Coleman, and NHPR's Emily Quirk. The Howe Library director is Ruby Simon. NHPR's program director is Emily Quirk. The show is sponsored by the Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation and the Howe Library Corporation. Thank you for listening. Remember to go to your local library and check out the books that you hear about on the show or go to your local bookstore and buy a copy. Thank you.